Entre nous. Entre nous. Dare to talk about sexuality. For you. With you. By you. Welcome in a new episode of the podcast uh, Entre Nous, the podcast of the Lovell Center. It's a non-profit organization in Belgium dedicated to sexuality and wellness and pleasure. So we're pretty proud to be one of the only centers in Europe to talk about pleasure and orgasm. And we propose conferences, workshops, spectacles, but also podcasts. And we are driven by joy, orgasm, creativity and enthusiasm. And today I have the great pleasure to invite Suzanne and Dr. Tischler on the mic. So welcome, and can you please introduce yourself? Thank you so much, Oliver, for having us and hosting us on the show. My name is Suzanne Malvahill, and I am a doctoral student at the International Institute of Clinical Sexology in Miami, Florida, and I am doing a dissertation on cannabis and female orgasm. My name is Dr. Jordan Tischler. I'm a physician based in the Boston, Massachusetts, United States area. And many years ago, after having completed my training in internal medicine at uh, Harvard Medical School and the hospitals associated, and then having um, spent about 20 years doing emergency medicine, I got very interested in cannabis, also called marijuana, not a term that I particularly like, and its use as a medical tool, as a medicine. And it was through that process and treating patients in my clinic here that I sort of stumbled upon this idea that cannabis could be used for sexuality. I had all of these patients who would come to me for various things like back pain or cancer symptoms, and they would come back and say, hey, Dr. Tischler, you know, not only did this help with the symptoms I came to you for, but just so you know, shh, I'm having the best sex I've ever had. And I had been doing some reading about that, and maybe I'd even given a, a little bit of a, a talk on that subject, but it started to really crystallize around that. And then Ms. Mulvihill, soon to be Dr. Mulvihill, came to me and said, hey, I'm working on this dissertation. Would you like to be involved and help me do that? And here we are. That's wonderful. It's really an amazing topic to discuss. And so as you understood, the topics today is about the orgasm and also cannabis. Prior to go into the topics, can you share with us your intention by recording this podcast together today? Sure. So for me, I have, for more than 30 years, I had an, what I guess you could define today as a female orgasmic disorder, um, difficulty having orgasm. In my 20s, I would have one and I wouldn't have one and I would have one. And, you know, I was married, went to my first sex therapist when I was in my early 20s. I, I remember buying a little book of like all the sex therapists and um, they didn't have computers back then. <laughs> you know, So I came in the mail and there was a there was a therapist and, you know, near me in Boynton Beach, Florida. So um I started, it took me actually after the eight months of therapy, I was able to start having some orgasms again. And then they went away again, went to see another sex therapist. And I went through this process for over 30 years, um, seeing four sex therapists in this time frame, and finding that the therapy wasn't really working. I mean, talking about this quote unquote problem, I can tell you that shame ended up um, getting piled up on top of the problem. Um, not being in a happy marriage was part of that, got out of the marriage, still had the problem, dated, still had the problem, and realized I was going to be carrying this problem like into every relationship that I had. So I would go sometimes one time for seven years without having sex, nine years without having sex, until I did a course in London. It was called Orgasmic Meditation, and that got helped me get rid of the shame, um, Anyway, that's kind of a, I'm going on a long story here, but my intention is to reach women, particularly who have struggled, I'm going to use the word struggled, with an orgasmic disorder, with this thing 
I'm going to call it this thing that um, can give us like, I can, I just can share. I carried around so much shame and really had no one to talk to about it. So I ended up like packing it into work, you know, getting a master's degree in business, becoming financially successful. And that's really when I realized that um, I had everything except love and a relationship in my life. So I did this, you know, I went and worked on myself and found cannabis through a relationship that is, I'm no longer in, but I discovered that I, I had, for example, a um, female ejaculation. Like for the first time in my entire life, I was, this experience happened and I thought, God, I wonder if cannabis had anything to do with that. And I tried it again and I was like, oh my God, this is actually kind of working for me. So that's kind of how I ended up beginning to go into, go back to school to go get a PhD in clinical sexology. It was actually something I wanted to do in my, after I saw my first sex therapist, (laughs) but then I had two kids and I got sidetracked. And so it's kind of, I'm 60. It's kind of the, the last part of my career is really the greatest part in a sense where everything I ever was afraid of has now become my career where I can talk about it. I, you know, I can be this. So I feel like I, you know, when I did this course in London that no longer exists, one of the guys told me that it's my destiny to do this work. I had the idea to create a nonprofit when during this time in 2017 called the Orgasm Project. I still had another company that I was doing full-time. I sold that company in 2020 and went back to school that same year. So I'm here to give hope and inspiration to women. When I started my PhD, when I started my dissertation, I did a Google search for like cannabis and sexuality. And that's when Dr. Tischler's office popped up. One of the only, there was nobody else. There was somebody in Canada that was talking about that. And I made a call to his office and said, hey, I'm doing this dissertation on cannabis and female orgasm, you know, looking for some help here in terms of guidance. And that's kind of how this path opened. So my desire as I move forward into getting my PhD, I'm in the survey process now collecting data. Dr. Tischler and I have presented at two uh, via, so far it's been via the internet, via two international conferences, the World Conference for Sexual Medicine. We presented theories there about how cannabis can be a treatment for female orgasmic disorder. Presenting at another conference in Orlando, actually, in a few weeks on the topic of how cannabis, how women who use cannabis more frequently are twice as likely to orgasm. And what are the theories behind that? So that's what I'm presenting on May 19th and 20th at the Cannabis Clinical Outcomes Research Conference. So I think that kind of gives a pretty rounded idea of letting women know, letting men know that all these, that there are proven pathways to orgasm. And that's what the Orgasm Project is going to be working on when, uh, as we fin- as I finish school. So thank you for asking that question, <laughs> Oliver. Thank you, Susan. It's so beautiful to listen to your life and feel that you are making this podcast with love and also generosity to give hope and inspiration to women and men and to better understand each other's and uh, share what you learned about all those years of uh, difficulties. So that's really uh, kind of you to share it because usually it's something that remains private or for experts. And so many women are in the in pain with that. I have had also many clients saying, I don't know what is an orgasm, you know? And then you feel the psychological pain related to the fact that people feel inadequate. So we'll talk to that probably afterwards. So thank you. Dr. Tischler, uh, can you share with us your uh, intention and desire contributing to this podcast? Absolutely. You know, I don't have quite the personal story that uh, Suzanne has brought. I'm certainly a very big fan of sex in general. But my motivations really come from 
patients, treating patients, being there to help support them along their journey and being able, when, when possible, to be able to intervene on their behalf to make life better. Uh, and it happens that uh, there are many symptoms and illnesses where cannabis can be used effectively to improve people's quality of life. And sexuality, it turns out, is one of those areas that's really not widely talked about, right? I mean, we, we sort of talked earlier about there. this is the intersection of two kind of taboo subjects, right? And cannabis certainly doesn't get very talked about, particularly you know, uh, in Europe is a little bit behind the United States, which is a little bit behind some other parts of the world. And then obviously sexuality is something that probably ought to be discussed a whole lot more so that we could do away with a lot of the stigma and the shame that, that Suzanne was talking about. So my drive for this is really about helping people live their best lives. You know, it also occurs to me that while our discussion today, the way I see our discussion today, is really this is about Suzanne's research and, and the exciting things that we're going to be able to help women with, you know, that comes out of the research that I'm helping her with. But I also should mention that I have a book on the subject that is not yet published, but I'm in the process of looking for a publisher, which is basically uh, the working title is very simply Cannabis and Sexuality. I think we can do better in a final title. But, you know, that gives you the sense that really this is a book that's very much focused on who can benefit from cannabis for sexuality, both males and females, as well as the history of cannabis and the history of sexuality as we understand them. And then moving into sort of how do you do this in a way that is most beneficial and avoids the pitfalls that, that can exist. Thank you for being part of this podcast to bring all those medicine expertise. And we know that science is learning every day and that we, what we can share now can be adjusted tomorrow, even already tomorrow in 24 hours, because that's how the science is working. You start it with the same process. You listen to the experience of people to clients, to people that were suffering from some pain. And then with the use of some medicals, you see unexpected effect on sexuality. And that's how the science is, is observing and trying to put the piece of the puzzle all together to help people to live better and uh, integrate everything together, if we can put a meaning behind that. So thank you. It's really important to have an expert eyes here today to share state-of-the-art information, knowing that it's just right here, right now, what you can say in a very brief podcast of half an hour or 45 minutes. The next question is about, personally, what is your vision of the sexuality right here, right now? What's your understanding? How you can define it for yourself? What is it? Hmm. That's an interesting question. When there's heart connection, I feel that passion really has a purpose. And in my life experience, passion is the doorway to like heart and love connection, which can be expressed through sexuality. And there's a lot of power in that power to change people's lives. It's not to be taken lightly. That said, sexuality can also be more of a casual nature, meaning there's not a heart and love connection. There is more of a pleasure connection as the main driver of sexuality, where the sexuality is, and, and I'm speaking about sex, I guess, at this time, you know, sexuality in terms of how we express ourselves. I will give you a quick example of the power of sexuality in my own life. When I was sharing earlier about my company that I had, and I did, got free of the shame, like literally got free of sexual shame my sales for my company doubled that year. So when I went to go sell my company, my business broker and the guy who went to go buy my company, um, who bought my company, they asked like, how did you double your sales that year? Well, I didn't exactly tell them, well, here's what happened. I got rid of my sexual shame. I actually started orgasming and I started having sex again and my sales doubled for my entire company. So, you know, no, I never said that. I said, well, I did some trade shows and um, I expanded into another region. But the truth of the matter is sex is powerful. Like it has the power to transform us. 
And my sense is that's part of why it has been remained taboo for cultural reasons, for conformity reasons, for societal reasons. But when we tap into our own personal power through our sexuality, anything is possible. Thank you. Hmm. It makes me think when you talk about the power, I really resonate with it because personally, people ask, I was an engineer in the oil and gas drilling industry in the past for 15 years. And I'm now a sexologist and coach with teenagers and adults. And people say, why you do change? Exactly what you say is the power of sexuality and orgasm. I changed my life because I lived, I have the chance to live amazing orgasm and none of them were the same, but really amazing orgasm in my life. Sometimes with 10 years time difference between the first and the second. But it was so awesome. And I say, why no adult is talking about it? Why is it a taboo? Because some of them is more about like energetic orgasm. And except in Tantra, where you can find some piece of explanation, it's still a bit shame and taboo in science to say, okay, uh, what about this kind of orgasm? And it's everybody, many people are passionate about sexuality. And uh, nobody talks honestly with kids, teenagers and adults. And I say, oh, it's time to do it. And it's changed my life completely. And I'm so proud because also it's so much vitality and energy and joy to do it. So, yeah, I feel that power of change, which is tremendous. And uh, what you live in your sexuality is in resonance or get direct impact in every domain of your life. So thank you, Suzanne. You're welcome. And Dr. Tischler, what is for you today, what it means, what is it sexuality for you personally, how you would explain it? Or Well, I think that's a very complicated <laughs> question. And obviously it means very different things for different people. And so, you know, my particular view of sexuality, I almost feel is irrelevant. You know, I will say that By way of background for your listeners, I just had my 30th wedding anniversary, so that sort of officially makes me an old married guy. And we have a powerful, active sex life that is more led by me than by her, which is one of those things where there could be some further discussion. But generally speaking, I think overall things are pretty good. But what I have really come to understand is that whether we're talking about males or females, that's not always the case. And that there is a whole lot of baggage that gets bestowed upon us by our family and our friends and our society. And some of it's internal that sort of stands in the way of others developing the sexuality that they want. And so it's important for us as people who are providing care to others, that we are able to relate to them, to bring answers to them, to allow them to explore in a safe way what it is that is helping or hindering their sexuality. For me, I don't think that there is a right sexuality or a wrong sexuality so long as it's consensual. Um, and therefore, there are constructs around sexuality, sometimes religiously imposed, others morally imposed, others inherited from, from our growing up, that, that can either be a facilitator to our growth, both personally and sexually, or more often, unfortunately, are inhibitors of that growth and the quality of life that goes with it. And that we then spend a lot of our adult lifetime either suffering from those imposed points of view or working, as Suzanne has so successfully done, to overcome them. And I think that that's really the important piece is that it can be overcome, that all of us are works in progress, and that our job as clinicians really is to empower people to make the changes, whether they're circumstantial changes or internal points of view or, a, you know, a whole mishmash of those things so that that quality of life and that empowered sexuality can come to the fore and people can be happy. Wow. So beautiful. When you talk about empowering people and increase the quality of life and feel great and look at the diversity and there is no good or bad, it just... We are all different and just be there to increase the quality of life of everyone. Thank you. So 
about the topic of today, about female orgasm, Suzanne, what do you want to share first, which is an important message? I think uh, having researched and read more than 900 research articles for my dissertation, one of the most interesting things that I discovered was that there was no consensus on the definition of female orgasm. There was an attempt at it in 2013 at a conference in Paris where some experts had made a definition uh, for male and female orgasm, but there has also been more than 25 different definitions of female orgasm. And with that being said, um, the fact that there is a, uh, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, the definition of female orgasmic disorder, I guess as a non, I'm, I'm as, as yet a non-clinician, meaning I'm, as someone who's an observer of this research, to think, well, how can there be a definition of the disorder if there's not a definition, a clear and defined definition of of what it actually is, what the orgasm is, yet we know what the disorder is. I mean, we do know what it is when a woman has never had an orgasm. And we also want to communicate that there's up, studies have shown that up to 41%, so nearly 50% of the female population in the world has some dimension of an orgasmic disorder. And that percentage has been found statistically to have not changed in more than 50 years. And that research came out of Finland um, by a doctor there that despite all of our sexual freedoms, women masturbation in masturbation or sex therapy, that percentage has not changed. So that's what I wanted to share about that. Suzanne, if I could ask you a question for the audience, you talk about disorder and I think that it's certainly possible that there are people listening who are thinking, well, you know, sure, I struggle maybe sometimes to have an orgasm, or maybe I just don't have them. But does this mean I have a disorder? And, you know, do I meet that bar? Should I be seeking treatment? So could you clarify maybe sort of who should be thinking about themselves in terms of seeking help? That's a great question, Dr. Tischler. And I think the, my experience on the answer to that, as well as what the Diagnostic Statistical Manual shares, is it's only if it creates distress that the definition was redefined the last time that they redid the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's called the DSM, when someone goes in to see a therapist. If it creates distress, that is really the, the spot or the point for a woman to, if she feels distressed, if she feels shame, if she feels uh, it's holding back her ability to have a relationship, um, she doesn't want to have sex, or she's completely lost interest in sex. I mean, that's another, and then it becomes a choice. But the fact that it had created some distress, I think, not just I think, it has been defined as the defining factor of whether it's a disorder or not. How does that sound? I think that sounds great. I think I might reframe that slightly in terms of the terms of quality of life that I keep bringing up. I think that, yes, if a woman is distressed, we can say that it is affecting her quality of life. If a woman has, I'm not sure, given up on it is quite what I'm really getting at. But if a woman is not having orgasms and it's not bothering her, then that's really not a disorder, right? That's a choice or a life circumstance or something. But if it isn't bothering her, then there's no need for us to sort of impose, oh, you should be having orgasms, right? You know, there are women for whom orgasms or sex at all simply is not important to them anymore or ever or any of those sorts of things. But if they are, you know, thinking, gosh, you know, I don't like having sex because I never get much out of it, then you've already set up that tension. I wish I could have this, but I can't because, right? And so that, I think, would be sort of the definition of that quality of life or distress situation. I don't care about sex 
is a perfectly fine statement, but if it's followed by because I never get anything out of it or because I never have an orgasm, that's slightly different from I just fundamentally don't care about it. And so I think for the people listening, that's a distinction that's worth noting because if there are women out there who are saying, yeah, I don't care about sex, but then they start to think, yeah, but I really actually kind of wish I could be having sex if I were getting something out of it, that's different from I really don't care. I agree with you. I, I think the phrase that you said, it's not bothering her. It doesn't bother her, but if it, it affects the quality of life, meaning, for example, a woman who may not have a partner yet had once a partner and doesn't understand why she doesn't have a partner, but she doesn't have any interest in having sex, you know? So some of this is buried, meaning it may be under the surface that she, it's not bothering her. Yet what I heard you share too, is there's a little bit of, it, it could be that there's some irritation in there. Uh, you know, I don't get anything out of sex. Okay, well, why not? So if a woman wants to start going to that spot, I mean, I know, of a woman who didn't have orgasm, wasn't having orgasms, wanted to have orgasms. And, but when she started to do this work, it was rising up, anger was rising in her and she didn't want to open that door. And that's fine. That was her choice. She closed it back and that was okay. It's a very individualized and personal choice. Suzanne, you mentioned something very essential. We talk about fundamental aspect. We question fundamental aspect of uh, orgasm when you say that there are, you observe in the literature, in the scientific document that there are 20, 25 different definitions of orgasm. How we can define there is a disorder scientifically if there are so much variety of the definition. And uh, it raises a lot of questions. Is there a difference of definition for men and women and what it could be? And don't we have a simplified version of the orgasm for the men while we have a more complex understanding or vision of the orgasm for the woman? While basically we have a body, which is a nerve system, which is a cardiovascular uh, system with hormones, with muscles, with the blood. Everything is pretty the same. But anyway, it seems there is a big difference scientifically when you talk about orgasm for men and women. In the 2003 the Paris Convention that was on uh, sexual medicine, when the consensus was made about female orgasm, the definition, and male orgasm, the one thing that stood out for me was that the woman's orgasm creates an altered state of consciousness. It did not say that in the definition for males, for men. My personal feeling is it doesn't just create it, that we need to be in an altered state for it to happen as a woman, as my personal, my personal, I used to wait for like, okay, I'm going into an altered state of consciousness. You know, like, no, it doesn't work like that. If that little alert system is on, that's not going to let it happen. So that altered state of consciousness really is where the, the tie-in or the link with cannabis comes in, which we can talk about in more detail if we would like to, but like, learning how to be in an altered state of consciousness, learning what that means and calming the nervous system so that the alert, the, the vigilance, the woman's vigilance of, oh, I'm feeling this. Oh, am I feeling that? Is that really what I'm feeling now? Am I going to have an orgasm in a minute? Like all of that thinking um, actually is what inhibits the orgasm. So that's what I have, that's, that's what stood out to me in these, def these definitions between male and female orgasm. If I may jump in, then I'm going to take a slightly different point of view, which is that I think that as much as we have discovered that female orgasms have been inadequately researched over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, male orgasms have been researched far less. And that I think that the definitions, particularly the issues around consciousness, unconsciousness, altered mental status, all of those apply to men as well, but they haven't been looked into with the, with the degree, that the lousy degree that we've even seen for women, and that oftentimes research in men gets very fixated upon the sort of obvious things. Did he get an erection? Did he ejaculate? Right? Those are things that are obvious and measurable. 
And so oftentimes researchers will focus on those sorts of things without really addressing the question of, did he have an orgasm? Well, if you equate an orgasm in a male with an ejaculation, I think you're missing the boat because there's certainly much more going on between his ears than simply ejaculating semen. And furthermore, when we get into that post-orgasmic state, which we tend to call satisfaction or intimacy, there's a whole lot going on there that I think is very equivalent between the sexes, but that again, hasn't really been explored. And generally speaking, you know, and this is a big generalization, but I think that men are far more reticent about speaking about these sorts of things than even women are. And so it's harder even to sort of dig into what they're thinking and feeling. And so some of the dichotomous thinking that, you know, women are different from men, it isn't, I think, accurate. And I think that when we look at the physiology, and then there's very little support for the idea that men and women are really radically different. It raised to my mind a very important point is where the diversity is huge. I think in the average or in the mainstream discussion, we tend trying to simplify the sexuality of the men and uh, make it maybe so simple that there is no question. And the fascinating word about, you know, all those challenge of reaching orgasm or high pleasure for women is a huge path of learning because maybe the journey is more important to meet yourself, to go in connection with yourself and to learn deeply and connect to your um, a power and uh, huge satisfaction of a beautiful journey. And um, I'm sure that if we open the box for the men, we will start to discover much more stuff also. Because some women may feel inadequate, but I've also client men that are saying, oh, I don't have orgasm or I don't have pleasure or I don't feel nothing or it's, you know, they have a similar, but it's even, it's a bit taboo for them to accept that uh, beyond erection or ejaculation, there is no real orgasm for them behind or together with it. And they are a bit lost with it. But as soon as there are some physiology effects, they are uh, accepting a bit. But what kind of learnings or important points you can uh, further develop now to help men and women to, uh, in this journey of uh, understanding the orgasm and, and feeling better with themselves. I'm thinking I had gone to see a, there was a sex therapist speaking at a university some time ago. And um, what she said was that has stayed with me all these years is become friends with your own sexual response. Don't judge it. Be with it. Meet it enjoy it, like own it, let it be yours, let it be ours. You know, Oliver, when you said like, meet yourself, like that stood out to me, like meet yourself, like meet your sexuality. I think a lot of times of the term goal oriented sex, like, you know, and you think about just as of the basics, the woman comes first, then the man comes, like, it's all about, okay, when the man comes, it's over, not necessarily. And that's kind of going beyond, like when you mentioned beyond erection, like for men, what's beyond erection and ejaculation? Like what's beyond a woman worrying about whether she's going to orgasm or not? You know, I mean, enjoying the moment, being in the pleasure. So I think that's really, you know, by the time, what happens for me is I go so deep into answering these questions that I forget what the question actually is. <laughs> I'm just going to stop. I will chime in with the following thought, which is that, you know, when we look at the presentation of men and women to primary care medicine for issues around sexuality, I think you can imagine that those numbers are not very good. But what's interesting to me is that those numbers do differ a little bit by sex and that while the number is only about 30% in women, it's really only about 18 or so percent in men. And then if you remember that many men who are presenting to their physicians for discussions of sexuality are really there for erectile dysfunction for which we have certain sorts of medications, if you factor out that number 
what you realize is that when we're talking about sort of the bigger picture, the less physiologic, the less mechanical issues around sexuality in men, those numbers are so small that they're actually really unmeasurable. So again, it's very clear that there's a whole lot going on under the surface, not only for individuals, but for us as a society in terms of being able to do the research effectively and also to be able to reach out to people who are suffering from these sorts of issues and making it safe enough and okay enough for them to come forward and ask for help. And that we have to change. What I found also fascinating with orgasm is that I used to make a, a conference of two, three hours about it because there is such a diversity of experience of orgasm that comes, you know, you don't control it. It comes suddenly and sometimes you cannot really expect it. It was just there once again away and it could be triggered by different kind of stimulation with a sound, with a touch, with uh, so many possibilities, with the core uh, muscles and uh, it's a very wide possibility of experience and I, I, I really wonder how is it really possible to define an orgasm because the variety is very broad about it and maybe we need several words to define it to put more understanding because you can distinguish more piece of the puzzle and, and start to see what you know what you don't know and start to meet yourself because everyone is different. You cannot expect to have the same kind of experience as someone else. I agree with you, Oliver. And just listing, like we think of women with clitoral orgasm, nipple orgasm, vaginal orgasm, anal orgasm. They've even in the research talked about a woman who could orgasm with the stroking of her eyebrow, that orgasm happens in different ways. And I think the focus of it being one way, you know, did you have an orgasm? like loosening that and exploring the body in the different ways the body can orgasm. And like you had shared that you can't control it. It's just there. I feel, and having done this, it can, we can block it with thinking about it, worrying about it. Is it going to happen? Like all of that vigilance can actually inhibit the orgasm. In fact, in the earlier, in the eighties, the diagnosis for what is now referred to as female orgasmic disorder was called inhibited female orgasm and inhibited male orgasm, meaning that it was there, but it was, it's inhibited. So it's freeing ourselves to explore and what's, what may be in the way of it if it's not happening. And this might be a good time for us to segue a little bit into talking about the value of cannabis in these circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, as most people who have experienced cannabis can attest, this substance, when ingested, creates an altered state like Suzanne was talking about. And if we can use this in a thoughtful and careful manner, then we can achieve a state where a lot of that inhibition that she was just talking about kind of takes a back seat. I would never want to say it goes away, but we can kind of distance ourselves from it. You know, we've got these voices in our head that say, you know, good boy or bad girl or things like that. And they get into that, that vigilance and that worry that Suzanne has been talking about that just then stands in the way of achieving that kind of harmonious experience. And by using a small amount of cannabis, we can kind of push that voice aside and, and say, look, you know what? I know you're there, but I'm, I'm not going to deal with you right now. Right now, I'm in the moment. I'm relaxing. I'm having this experience and what comes of this experience will be what it will be, and it will be wonderful and enjoyable. And that's really, I mean, there are physiologic changes associated with using cannabis in terms of lubrication and erection and the stimulation of desire. But really, when we're focusing on the issue of orgasm and the frequency and the intensity and sort of the quality, intimacy around that orgasm, that's really what we're trying to achieve using cannabis. And it works in both, again, males and females. I would say that it is important, if we're going to digress and talk about males for a second, that we be a little bit more focused on the dose 
there's a little bit more leeway for most females in terms of what that dose is, what sort of where is that sweet spot. For men, it's a little bit more complicated because if you cross that threshold, things can actually become inhibited, particularly on the erectile side of things, because it turns out that maintaining an erection is actually something that you have to kind of be present to do. But the point really is that creating that altered state that Suzanne has been talking about in all people allows us to be able to explore that orgasmic potential and appreciation and self-love in ways that some people can't access without a little intervention. Wow, it's really, uh, really, really beautiful because indeed it's more about not the body is not adequate, but the way we make love can block or inhibit or prevent the full expression of the body with the pleasure and maybe a climax, an orgasm or whatever that could happen and you can never control. So it usually could even not become an objective because it's nothing you can control or invite. It just, you can be in a state that is favorable. And I remember some experience, you know, of uh, a sexual experience with my partner when we just become the movement and the sensation. And at the end, when you talk about harmonious experience, I was bringing that experience to my mind back. And yes, at that moment, I remember that I didn't know who I am. It's like, which body is who? Which sensation is what? It's like I'm, I don't know what are the limits of my body. It's like, you know, you cannot be touched without touching someone. You cannot touch someone without being touched, you know? You can see someone and that people cannot see you. But when you touch someone, both are touched. And it's like, bring me, yeah, when you are in the harmony of being free in the experience to explore and open the body to the potential of marvel, something can happen. And that's where probably the cannabis can help a lot is that it creates a, a different perspective on the mind and body exploration. Do you think that once people can experience an orgasm, maybe thanks to the cannabis, it just opens a door and they, because they experience it once, they become more familiar about the, you know, the ingredients which are adequate for them to develop the potential of pleasure? you know, with less fears or uh, looking to yourself or worry or vigilance or whatever, you know, it's like you allow yourself to experience something and then you become more free to experience it by yourself without any additives, I would say. What do you think about that? I think that there's absolutely possibility for that. It's a learning process in some ways, or perhaps it's a forgetting process. I'm not sure. But <laughs> in either case, I think that it's unlikely that that, you know, just in the nature of human beings, it's unlikely, I think, that sort of a single cannabis experience will be such a revelation and open the door so completely that that's all you'd need. But I think it's much more a matter of using this tool as a way to learn about what you like, what you don't like. And even to some extent, while sort of scooting some of those inhibitions out of the way, you also get a perspective on those inhibitions, right? You can say, I'm going to be in the moment and I'm going to not pay attention to these things that I've now put kind of on the shelf. But at the same time, by putting them on the shelf, I think you kind of get a good look at them and you can start to say, huh, all right, I'm not going to deal with this now, but later, maybe I'm going to unpack that box and see what's in there. And so I think that that's very much a process. And I would very much hate for anybody who is listening to this discussion to run out and buy some weed and then say, oh, you know, I had a great orgasm, but it didn't make, it didn't fix me. You know, I don't know that I think it fixes people. I think it's a tool that allows us to gain insight and maturity over time that then may lead uh, to being able to have those kinds of intimacies and orgasms without the substance after we've kind of done the work, if you will. More like therapy in that way than it is like a medicine that you take, like an antibiotic where, you know, you have a problem and then the problem goes away. This is much more like therapy where over time, you get a handle on things and things become better. I agree with Dr. Tischler. And uh, just to share with you, my I only started using cannabis a few years ago. 
I was very much against it. I was married to someone who I saw or at least experienced using it in a way that wasn't helpful. I mean, using it to cover up versus explore. So I think the intention, like using it as a sacred medicine, a sacred medicine, when I use it with intention and also creating a practice of using it to, like Dr. Tischler shared, where the cannabis will let me know what I, where I need to look, what kind of work I need to do on myself. When I first started using it, I used to have to put my conscious mind like in one room watching television, like, okay, we're going to put you over here. And are you comfortable, you know, and watch some, like I had a, my mind, I, I would have a tight gut. My gut would actually be tight because I just didn't know how to let go. I didn't know what surrender meant. I didn't understand it. And over time, this inner sense of trust, uh, and I heard throughout this, our show, our sharing, the word safety has come up several times. The self, like knowing my own sense of safety uh, feeling safe is very, very, very important to let go, even with cannabis, like to get into the practice of going into an altered state, creating an intention. What do I want to experience here? What What do I need to learn here? And letting cannabis be a guide for that experience. So, and in my my experience of using it, like creating pleasure practice with cannabis, like letting myself explore myself with the medicine. And like you shared, Oliver, that maybe in the future or sometimes yes, sometimes no, using it with sex. I mean, statistics and studies show that some research out of uh, by Dr. Becky Lynn in 2019 in Missouri showed that more than 30% of women were using cannabis before sex and that women who used cannabis more frequently were twice as likely to orgasm. One other piece of research that I found fascinating was by a Dr. Kasman in 2020. And what he found that was that regardless of why a woman used cannabis, the frequency of cannabis use actually was decreasing any type of sexual dysfunctions by as much as 21%. So there is something that maybe Dr. Tischler can speak about on frequency of why that plays a role. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But this frequency of cannabis use seems to play a role in sexuality, female orgasm. That's a really interesting question, Suzanne. I'm not sure that it is a chemical or physiologic phenomenon. I would guesstimate that women who use cannabis more frequently, particularly with regard to sexuality, you know, two things. One is that that suggests that they're actively trying to improve their quality of life. That's number one. So, I mean, they're, they're a committed or a motivated group to start with. And then on top of that, they're having that experience, that learning experience that we were just talking about on a more frequent basis. You know, if we think about any kind of learning, if you do it infrequently, if you want to be a pianist and you practice once a month, you are certainly going to get less far in your skill than if you practice every day. And I suspect that there is a very much an analogy there that the more you practice having intimacy and orgasms, whether by yourself or with a partner, the more likely you are to get good at it. So I think, you know, that's really important. You touched on something that I think is also important, which is that because this is a new and taboo set of fields, and also because it's just a new experience for many people, my recommendation is that if you're thinking about using cannabis for sexuality, you don't start with your partner. You know, you start, as you had said, Suzanne, exploring yourself. And I talk in my book, there's a whole chapter on sort of setting the stage you know, and whether that's, you know, a hot bath and candles or whatever, that gets us in the mood, if you will. And then by using cannabis, we can kind of cross that bridge to put those fears and inhibitions aside, but that doing this with a partner can become, let me rephrase that and simply say, 
jumping to the partnered sexual experience without adequately first spending some you know, solo time brings in every, you know, at least one other person's worth of baggage. And that just makes it much more complicated. And it is, I think, much more successful if one starts out by using cannabis by oneself and masturbating and exploring the feelings that you can achieve, the relaxation, what is it like to be in this altered state? What are the fears? What am I putting in that box? You know, all of those sorts of things so that then after a few sessions, perhaps doing it that way, you're feeling more confident and more ready to engage in partnered sexuality. And that way, when you're meeting with your partner, you not only have more knowledge of what is likely to happen, but also that confidence that you know that, for example, you have been able to achieve some very pleasant orgasms by yourself. And so you know that the, how the cannabis is working and that it is achieving you know, some benefit for you in that solo situation. And so that being in the partnered situation doesn't have to have all of those anxieties overlaid while you're trying to now focus on what does it mean to have sex with my partner in this altered state. So that kind of solo preamble, I think, is very, very important. And let me take a moment to shift gears to something that's very practical and say that there are a lot of different ways that we can consume cannabis, many of which are not actually all that helpful in this situation. And then certainly for, for people who are relatively new to cannabis, there is this strong feeling that, well, I don't want to smoke it. And so therefore, I will go with an edible. Edibles, as you know, are small bits of food stuff that have cannabis added to it. And generally speaking, I can respect and understand the desire to avoid smoking per se, but the edibles are really not a better solution because the edibles can be very unpredictable in how long it takes for them to work, what is the right dose, and then how long will they last. And certainly when we're talking about a partnered in encounter, it's very fashionable to talk about sort of romantic multi-course infused meals but in fact, that's problematic because you just don't know that everyone is going to sort of get revved up and land, sexually speaking, on the same page at the same time. So my recommendation really is to put aside the edibles. If you want to have a romantic dinner, great. Just do a regular, normal romantic dinner, but then get a quality cannabis flower vaporizer, not one of those little oil pens because those aren't very safe, but the kind of vaporizer that you put the cannabis, the ground up weed into, and where you can set the temperature exactly to 350 degrees, or as you guys say, 180 degrees Celsius. That's the ideal temperature for vaporization. And you can use this to very carefully monitor the dose that you and perhaps your partner is getting. And you can also use this as part of the foreplay. So the vaporizer becomes part of the warm-up activities, obviously after you've done the solo experiments that I talked about a few minutes ago. But this is a way of making sure that it's working, that we're being careful and not overdoing it, and that we can bring everybody to the bed, so to speak, uh, kind of at the same time, ready to go. I'd like to share, I think, what Dr. Tischler is sharing about, I think it was great what you've shared about helping people, especially if they have never used cannabis and in some countries it's not legal yet. So the access to it is, can be challenging, but for say, for example, a woman who would like to start a practice, a pleasure practice and integrating some cannabis to explore different paces, maybe use the other hand, see what comes up emotionally you know, set a, make a commitment. I mean, I have a group of women that I have been meeting with online for two years who are, who are doing a pleasure practice as a commitment to their sexuality. So the practice is really important as Dr. Tischler had mentioned. And something that a therapist had shared with me years ago is that like neurons that fire together, work together, fire together. So the neuroplasticity, which is really where the brain then learns new neural pathway, like there's a new, if we're learning to play the piano, for example, we can 
start to memorize how to play the piano without looking at the notes. If we can apply that same philosophy to learning how to explore one's body with masturbation, what feels good? When does it stop feeling good? When does it start feeling good? Uh, when does when do you when does a woman start thinking? Start thinking. When does the thinking kick in? When is she not thinking? Like to begin to really pay attention without vigilance. That, I want to add that caveat that it's more of a say post the pleasure practice session, like a twenty minute, thirty minute. When I first started with the pleasure practice, I actually created meditations for myself. Um, two of them are on YouTube. I can share them with Oliver after, but I would listen to meditations and kind of get out of my head and get into my body and pay attention with the cannabis of, of what feels good, what comes up. Journaling is also a part of this, you know, using the after, after the pleasure practice, after the high from the THC is experienced, where was, where, where did you feel good? Where was the growth? I found that I would, you know, occasionally still go for the goal, you know, and then feel disappointed that it didn't work. And it's like, okay, well, what is that about, Suzanne? You know, very goal-oriented, like getting out of the goal, getting into the pleasure, that it doesn't matter if the orgasm happens or not. What matters is what am I feeling and how does it feel? So really going into the feeling versus removing ourselves from the thinking. And that's where cannabis can help us create new, newer pathways, new, and Dr. Tischler, maybe you can expand on what that means when you create a new neural pathway. <laughs> I wish I could <laughs> because, you know, it's interesting. There's, um, there are all sorts of studies out there looking at kind of what areas of the brain light up with sexual stimulation and particularly with orgasm. And it's been looked at in men and in women. And, you know, there's some commonalities, but we're, it's sort of like we're still looking at the moon without a telescope, right? We could see that it's there, but we really don't understand kind of, you know, what's going on in the nooks and crannies where all the important details lie. It's, we're, we, we have a very clear understanding at this point of sort of where consciousness lies and how it interacts with kind of those higher order uh, vigilance, those voices, the, you know, we understand that, but how we retrain ourselves to be able to let go of that baggage. See, right now we're back, we're away from neurologic language and back into psychological language. How that happens on that neurologic level, I don't think we have a really good understanding. It's clearly involving a lot of the memory pathways through the hippocampus, but it's just not that simple because we understand that most of those sort of you know, super ego-esque uh, voices really live in the frontal lobes and interact through the prefrontal lobe to create, you know, the, the me, the, the where our consciousness lives. Uh, a lot of the medications like cannabis and some of the psychedelics, their role is really to kind of shut down certain areas of that, of our brain, the ones that are filled with those kind of should and ought to and really then allow us to explore the parts of our brains that are um, otherwise inhibited by these parts that have been shut down. But how that translates into our becoming sort of better, happier, more fulfilled individuals, I don't think we're there yet. We can simply appreciate that certain chemicals like cannabis or MDMA or psilocybin can help us achieve the kind of insights or learning that then allows us to be better. And I think I'm going to have to leave it at that. What is really amazing is that we touched the magic of the body. It's like very concrete and we talk about the physical body, but also it's like also a bit spiritual and philosophical because it's really humble to say, okay, we can just appreciate what we observe and be curious It's a very, very rich discussion. I was saying to myself when we are, let's say we have pleasure with ourselves or with a partner, how I talk to my cells, to all the cells of my body. Because in fact, 
when we start to be excited, we touch, there are molecules, we produce neurotransmitters, hormones, and we fill the body with a lot of molecules that probably impact the neural system, but also the sensors, I would say, on the cells' walls. And everything is changing and adapting, and it's like the hear of the cells will... The only thing that our cells can hear, the internal ambience of molecules. And if we can shut down the mind, as you say, with the ego or the should or, or the fears or whatever, and we feed our body with beautiful sensation and just listen to it, it's already a big step to progress, to understand how our own body is working. Because I'm pretty sure that everybody will... The entry door of pleasure is different and it's very unique. And I encourage people to talk to discover themselves and also share with a partner what are their specificity because you are so different. There is no formula, there is no guide. You just have to talk to your partner, communicate and say, this is how I love, this is the kind I, I, I already know about me, this is the kind of touch and sensation which is creating a beautiful sensation and where I feel joy inside me and uh, feel increase the quality of my life with Thanks to sexuality. It's like a lever to increase the quality of joy and the life by basic steps, step by step, slowly. We already share a lot. I wonder, Dr. Tischler or Suzanne, if, you, if there is something important for you to share uh, prior to maybe close the podcast and wish a very great journey to all the listeners. And we hope it will help them to be curious, humble, and uh, fascinated by themselves with a lot of compassion, whatever they already live with some orgasm or no orgasm. But maybe you want to share some advice, extra advice. I was just going to say, I'm not entirely sure I have more advice. I think we've really talked about a lot of very important stuff today, but I also think that it's you know, there's only so much we can accomplish in a podcast, of course. So it seems to me that it would be important for your listeners if they were nodding their heads and thinking, yeah, this could apply to me, to be able to reach out to Suzanne and to myself. And so I will let Suzanne speak for herself. But if people are interested in reaching out to me, they certainly can by going to my website, which is inhale. MD, that's I-N-H-A-L-E-M-D.com. And there are a lot of articles on that website in our blog that are very helpful and written for non-clinical folk. And there's actually a search bar. So if you go to the search bar and you put in sex or something like that, you'll come up with a bunch of different articles that talk about this sort of thing. And if people want to email me directly, they can do that through the website or they can email me at doc, D-O-C, at inhalemd.com. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tischler. Uh, yeah, and my website is orgasmproject.org. It's a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the United States. And there is a blog on the website with a number of articles we continue to add information and research. You can sign up for updated information on orgasm research through a, you know, just to our newsletter on orgasm research. Also, there's a library. We're putting together a portal of orgasm, female orgasm research for it to be found in one place. For example, if you wanted to look up about uh, altered states of consciousness and female orgasm, then you can look at articles about that. Wanted to look up, you know, different types of articles that are available that way and uh, in our own research. So if women are listening to this who use cannabis and are sexually active, you're welcome to take our survey. For, that's for my dissertation. That can be found under the R research section. And um, the website is info at orgasmproject.org is where you can reach me directly. Thank you so much, Oliver, for this opportunity and Dr. Tischler for being here too. Thank you. Thank you for both of you for this wonderful podcast. I really hope that it will help people to feel better with themselves, to have compassion about themselves, and really whatever they are in their life and sexual life, feel good with, adequate, curious. And indeed, if it's, I really appreciate that uh, you are open to, uh, that the listener can contact you 
and first look at your production articles or studio or anything you can share so that they can further understand themselves and uh, maybe make great progress they are looking for for a long time thank you thank you thank you for this great moment it's a very long podcast it's the first time but i think it was very important to give enough time to talk about that topic which is a bit of unknown and taboo and uh, which bring a lot of uh, important question about sexuality. Thank you. This was great. Thank you. You know, thank you for hosting and for this to be women and men can listen. And uh, it's a step towards more awareness, understanding and pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you again. It's important that we get the word out to people that there are resources that can help them feel better. I mean, that's the name of the game, right? is ultimately we want a, a life that we can be proud of and that we've enjoyed. And it's important that people who, you know, may be struggling with this aspect can get that kind of support. So thank you again for all that you're doing, Olivier. Thank you. Entre nous. Entre nous. There to talk about sexuality. For you. With you. By you.